News continues. Let's hand it over to Michael Smirkanish and CNN Tonight. Michael. Anderson, thank you. I am Michael Smirkanish, and welcome to CNN Tonight. Something stunning happened this evening. The committee investigating January 6th held the man second only to Donald Trump in the West Wing on the day of the attempted insurrection in contempt of Congress. And moreover, for the first time, we heard that not only were Republican members of Congress privately texting the chief of staff, seeking help in stopping the siege, but so too were some of the president's favorite mouthpieces, who since January 6th are the least willing to talk about the reality of that day. In fact, I couldn't help but notice that their network didn't even carry live the events that I'm now showing you. This witness must testify, like 300 other witnesses before him have done, either voluntarily and proudly as a patriotic citizen, or at least under compulsion of subpoena by the Congress of the United States. But he has no right anywhere in our constitutional system to defy a subpoena from the House of Representatives. What we saw tonight was a committee making clear that even some of the biggest names in Trump world knew what we all were watching unfold on January the 6th was not just a protest. And many of the president's most public supporters were privately urging the White House to get the president to call off the attack. Members of Congress, the press, and others wrote to Mark Meadows as the attack was underway. One text Mr. Meadows received said, quote, we are under siege here at the Capitol. Another, quote, they have breached the Capitol. In a third, Mark, protesters are literally storming the Capitol, breaking windows on doors, rushing in. Is Trump going to say something? This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy. Laura Ingram wrote, please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished, Brian Kilmeade texted. Quote, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol, Sean Hannity urged. As the violence continued, one of the president's sons texted Mr. Meadows, quote, he's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough, Donald Trump Jr. texted. The nine members of the bipartisan committee unanimously voted tonight to hold Meadows in contempt for refusing to answer their questions. But it's clear, even in the absence of his testimony, the committee has amassed a tremendous amount of evidence. CNN congressional correspondent Ryan Nobles joins me now from Capitol Hill. Ryan, I said at the outset it was really a stunning evening. I don't know what surprised me more to hear the names called out of Fox News personalities who frankly don't talk about the events of January 6th, and yet they were urging Mark Meadows to get the president to shut it down, or the references made to Republican members of Congress who were doing likewise, except they weren't named tonight. I think you're absolutely right, Michael, and I think that is the big question that now lingers over this committee. Who are 
those members of Congress that were in contact with Mark Meadows, not only on January 6th, the members of Congress that were pleading with him to try and get the president to, to do something to call off his supporters and quell the violence here on Capitol Hill, but also those lawmakers that were in uh, conversation and communication with Mark Meadows for the days and weeks leading up to January 6th after the November election that were aiding and abetting this attempt to uh, stymie the democratic process to try and uh, prevent the certification of electoral votes. And what we saw tonight was an outline of texts that did both of those things, right? Uh, a group of texts that showed people in communication with Mark Meadows trying to undermine the election results, and then a second set of text messages uh, trying to prevent uh, something uh, terrible from happening here on January 6th, which was already happening at the time. For instance, uh, there was a lawmaker that texted to Meadows uh, that said on January, that said, suggesting this to Meadows, on January 6th, 2021, Vice President Mike Pence, as President of the Senate, should call out all electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional Constitutional as no electoral votes at all. This is essentially, you know, uh, buying into this questionable legal theory that somehow uh, the vice president, who on that day had really only a ceremonial role, could just not accept the the duly elected electors, uh, the votes that were sent here to Washington, and certify them uh, and elect Joe Biden the next president of the United States. Now, the text that Meadows was receiving on January 6th, one of them from a lawmaker to Meadows that said, the president needs to stop this ASAP. Keep in mind, this is from a lawmaker, Michael, that's essentially under attack here on January 6th on that day, pleading with the president to do something, and at this point, he's not really doing anything. And then another a text to a lawmaker, yesterday was a terrible day. We tried everything we could in our objection to the six states. I'm sorry, nothing worked. So right. you see the dichotomy With disappointment. Here, right? With some uh, disappointment. Like, too bad yes, we didn't exactly. pull it off. Right, exactly. So it wasn't just about... Uh, you know, people being concerned for their lives, which is what you read in some of these texts, but it was also about this disappointment that they were unable to prevent the democratic process from moving forward. Right. So if I were now taking the deposition of Mark Meadows, if they get to that point, I would say, Mr. Meadows, you received these texts on January 6th. What did you do with them? Did you bring them to the attention of the president? What was the president's response? I mean, essentially, it's the Howard Baker question. Many years later, what did the president know? And when did he know it? Ryan Nobles, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. The committee's argument against Mark Meadows tonight is about building a case based on evidence. And as Ryan just said, that includes the former chief of staff's own text messages. One text Mr. Meadows received said, quote, we are under siege here at the Capitol. Another, quote, they have breached the Capitol. In a third, Mark, protesters are literally storming the Capitol, breaking windows on doors, rushing in. Is Trump going to say something? A fourth, there's an armed standoff at the House chamber door. And another from someone inside the Capitol. We are all helpless. Dozens of texts, including from Trump administration officials, urged immediate action by the president. Quote, POTUS has to come out firmly and tell the protesters to dissipate. Someone is going to get killed. Mark Meadows was flooded with texts like these that day. Among those sending him urgent messages, my first guest tonight. Alyssa Farah was 
Trump's White House communications director starting tonight. She's also a CNN political commentator. Her texts with Mark Meadows are central to this investigation. In fact, she was part of Meadows' inner circle for years. Alyssa, thank you for being here. In fact, let's begin there so that people can appreciate what you're about to say. What's the nature and length of the relationship, professional relationship, that you had with Mark Meadows? When did it begin and what was the context? Well, Michael, it's great to join you. Listen, I've known Mark Meadows for the better portion of a decade. Uh, Worked with him in the House as his personal spokesperson, as the spokesperson for the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, Continued to work with him when I was with the vice president and then came back to the White House when he was chief of staff. And let me say this. The Mark Meadows that I knew was a man who cared about the Constitution. He cared about the congressional role and oversight. And that all seems to be kind of thrown out the window in this current proceeding. And that's what's kind of astonishing to me. He's a man who knew the co-equal branches of government and the fact that obviously Congress absolutely has a right to issue these subpoenas and to get to the bottom of the horrifying events of, Jan- of January 6th. I'm stunned that he's not cooperating. Um, it's never too late to do the right thing, and I would hope he would consider doing it. But all, all signs point to he's not going to be cooperating. But luckily, the committee's got a ton of evidence to build this case. Well, let's talk about some of that evidence. You stayed at the White House through the election. You were there until December the 4th. You left why? Well, listen, we had lost the election. Um, There were a lot of kind of rumors running around the uh, administration about folks not wanting to leave because there was pressure to stay because we weren't going to acknowledge the results of the election. Honestly, it was important to me to set an example for staff and for those around me of we did lose. Um, That is a fact. Joe Biden was the duly elected president of the United States, and it was just time to move on. For a while, though, you bought into some of the complaints about the election, right? I'm a Pennsylvanian. I have a recollection of you saying that Pennsylvania officials were putting their thumb on the scale. Well, that was a comment made before the votes were cast. Um, That was on Election Day prior to polls being closed. And it was talking specifically about a state official that was um, discussing certain precincts ahead of votes even being cast. I thought that that showed some sort of a bias. I've never and never will buy into the notion that the election was stolen or that there was widespread enough fraud that it could have turned the results any other way. Joe Biden is the president. Uh, Republicans didn't win because Donald Trump simply did not get the votes. So it's January 6th. Where are you as you're watching? So I was down in Florida. I was advising the Georgia Senate runoffs. I'd left the White House, as you said, about a month prior. And I was horrified. I spent years working in the Capitol. I spent a lot of time in the Capitol when I worked for Vice President Pence, who, of course, is the president of the Senate. And knowing that he was there having these threats made against his lives, as well as Speaker Pelosi, other members of Congress, and knowing they were in imminent danger was, I mean, it was horrifying. We all remember that day very well. Um, You know, as you mentioned in your lead up, I was one of the people who sent a text message to Mark Meadows. um, And I very clearly stated, if the president, if President Trump won't go out and condemn this, you should. And I fundamentally believe that every person in the White House or around him who had a platform and a voice to speak out had an obligation to speak out on January 6th, even if they could just marginally pull. I think I can put on the screen a text that you may lay claim to. So let's take a look at it together. I don't know if you have a screen that you can see this. One former White House employee reportedly contacted Mr. Meadows several times and told him, you guys have to say something. Even if the president's not willing to put out a statement, you should go, flipping to the next part, to the cameras and say, we condemn this. Please stand down. If you don't, people are going to die. 
Is that your text? That is my text. And Michael, what's so horrifying in retrospect and hearing you read that back is that was about an hour before Ashley Babbitt died. And it was a few hours before we learned that Officer Sicknick died. So, there was a window where people of good conscience could have spoken up and stopped the violence. And I'm, I'm curious. You sent that to Mark Meadows where? How? I guess what I'm getting at, was it a personal phone? Yes, I was I was had left the White House. I only had a personal phone and I sent it to his personal phone. Right. But I, I guess, of course, I'm replaying Hillary in my mind now and all the debate over private servers and so forth. And I'm questioning the propriety of him receiving messages like that on his personal phone. To be honest, I think that's kind of the least of these issues. I think there were plenty that are going to come out in this committee that were certainly germane to White House activities that should have been right. on a White House phone, right. but, but the, the a lawyer, former staffer lawyer, sending him a personal text. Yeah, the lawyer in me is wondering about the universe of sources of information that might be available to this committee. Question, did he respond? Well, yeah, go ahead. Did he respond? He did not, um, and I, I may... He did not respond. And I also called the White House trying to reach the president that day, was unable to reach him. But it it goes back to this. The committee is doing incredibly important work. And I think it's been smart that they've kept their heads down. They've not made this a big flashy show where they're, you know, having cable news driven hearings. They wait until they have something and then they lead with the facts. And what what Congresswoman Cheney did today showing how, you know, some of these Fox News hosts are speaking out of both sides of their mouth on this. They knew how bad this was the day of and even the few days afterward that most of the party did. But then they've completely changed their tone now. That I think is really revealing to Americans who are watching this and realize they're basically being lied to by a lot of the people in power or the media elites. Right. Well, I appreciate the fact that they were all reaching out for the president that day. I mean, it's something that those of us with no access would have liked to have done. The problem, as you point out, is the lack of conversation thereafter. That they wanted it to stop is great, but now, ever since January 6th, treating it like it was inconsequential is appalling. Alyssa Farah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much. Next, a journalist whose work has been cited by the committee as critical to this investigation will join us live. The central question of January 6th is how far up the executive branch this went. The committee has laid out the evidence that points all the way to the White House chief of staff. And much of that evidence was first uncovered in the book Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show. The book is actually cited four times in the committee's resolution for contempt. The author joins me now, ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. What surprised you about tonight's events? I think that the email from Donald Trump Jr., the pleading email to Mark Meadows saying, get my father on television, get my father in the Oval Office, speaking to the country, calling on those people to stop. It's gone too far. Uh, That's pretty dramatic. Uh, When when the president's own son, when the president's namesake uh, is unable to get through to his own father, and is reaching out and pleading with the chief of staff to do something. I mean, that was really what rest of the rest of the country was doing at that time. Where was Donald Trump? I mean, that ultimately is the question. Where was he during those hours? Why was he refusing to do anything uh, to deal 
with a crisis that was unfolding right before our eyes. Well, to your point, why would Donald Trump Jr. have to go through Mark Meadows to reach his father unless his father was completely siloed in in the Oval Office or in the anteroom? I mean, look, I outline in detail in Betrayal what was going on to the best of my knowledge and what I could determine during the hours of the riot in the Oval Office and in the West Wing of the White House. And what I found is that Mark Meadows was the person that was with Trump during virtually the entire period. He was going back and forth. Trump spent most of those most of that time in a little dining room adjacent to the Oval Office that operated as kind of a, a second office for Trump. It had television screens. He could watch what was happening. Meadows was there. Meadows was taking incoming calls uh, from many people. You heard Liz Cheney go through some of them, but there were several others. I mean, one of those who I talk about Uh, in my book, who approached Meadows in the hallway outside the Oval Office, was the Deputy National Security Advisor, Matt Pottinger, who was so horrified by what he saw and went to Meadows and said, why can't we get something done here? Why aren't we doing anything to stop the riot? That Pottinger actually went from seeing Meadows in the hallway outside the Oval Office back to his office, the National Security Advisor suite, and wrote his letter of resignation right there at that moment. I mean, Meadows really is Meadows really is the key to, to all of this. Uh, what, he was Jonathan, the one what, what is, uh, that was that was with Trump at the time. What is going on here, insofar as Meadows produces nine thousand documents and writes a book, initially is cooperating and now draws a line in the sand. Explain that to me. I think he's trying to manage his relationship with Donald Trump, which at this point is really all he has. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm absolutely confident that Meadows, uh, when he wrote the book, told Trump he was writing the book. Uh, obviously, Trump's quote is on the front page of the book. Trump put out a statement praising it as the truth. Uh, Meadows uh, you know, wasn't going to put anything in that book without first running it by Donald Trump. But when Trump saw how it played, the idea uh, that Trump had a positive COVID test before the debate, it's in the book. Um, and when Trump saw how it, it played, he got furious. He got angry. And now Meadows needs to make a show of support uh, for Trump and needs to pick a fight uh, with, a, with, a, with an enemy of Trump, which is this committee. So I, I, I think that I think that's what's going on. He's just trying to get back in good graces with a with a very angry uh, former president. Final question, big picture, because I, I want to run something past you. Initially, I thought president speaks on January 6th, chaos ensues without any plan, without any malice aforethought. And then I read your book. And of course, I read Costa and Woodward's book. And I put together some of the attendant circumstances, the Eastman memo, the Ellis memo that you brought to light. The challenges in the states, the leaning on Justice Department to say, hey, play ball with us vis-a-vis Georgia, the leaning on Pence, and of course, the communications to the foot soldiers. It was really a coordinated plan of attack, right? Yeah, and I would also add leaning on the Department of Defense uh, to uh, uh, to investigate these crazy conspiracy theories and maybe do more. Leaning on uh, the Director of National Intelligence, the top intelligence official in the country. Meadows was doing all of this. The president was doing all of this. 
And I, I think that that is, I mean, that's what I put forward in my book, Betrayal. This was not a one-off event. This wasn't the president riling some people up who decided spontaneously to go in and, and attack the Capitol. This wasn't even just a riot in the Capitol. That's the petty crime of right. it all. I mean, it's serious. It's serious obviously, but the real crime is what it was intended to do, and that is to stop the transition of power, to disrupt the, basically the fundamental tenet of American democracy, that after an election, the loser leaves, the winner is sworn in. They tried to disrupt that. But here's the thing, Michael, if I can just say one final thing on all of this, as we focus on Meadows' role, as we focus on the others around Trump, you mentioned Eastman and Ellis, there's the whole question of who did what with the National Guard. Don't lose sight of the big picture, and that is Trump himself. Trump himself is the one who refused to admit defeat and, and vowed to do anything he could to overturn the results of the election. Trump is the one who saw what was happening on January 6th, saw his own supporters go into the Capitol building and refused to, even after the pleadings of his son, uh, refused to come out and call on them uh, to stop until the riot was almost over. He's the one who did not pick up the phone to say, where is the National Guard? I want the National Guard up there immediately. He didn't do any of it. So yes, there, there, there's a lot to talk about the people around the president. And I think Meadows is first and front and center on all of that. Uh, but the actions of the former president himself uh, are, are really well, there's, there's a the, missing, the key I factor just have to, to all this, of this. I have to say this quickly. There's a missing piece that I want to know the answer to. I want to know what went down at the Willard Hotel the night before. But for all of these machinations and for all of these moving parts, I want to know what was the level of communication to those foot soldiers? Because I think of the guy with the horns and I think about those who actually broke into the Capitol when they got there. They didn't seem to have a clue. They didn't seem to have a plan. They wandered around. They weren't even squatters which would have precluded actually tallying the vote. I can't believe, is what I'm saying, Jonathan, I can't believe it would have been left to chance to just stoke this whole thing and then sit back and see what happens. There's a missing piece here, and we need to know the answer to it. Anyway, thank you so much. I appreciate your being here. Thank you. Jonathan Carl is the author you, of Michael. Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show. We appreciate him being here. Vaughn, do we have social media reaction tonight? So many things going on. Go ahead. Yeah, what do we got? Uh, you cannot conduct a coup of a government you are the leader of. Start there, Mikey, and then we can discuss. I'm not quite sure what to make of that observation. You, All right, I'll take you at face value. Uh, put that back on the screen for just one second. I want, I want to see what this, this folks, uh, this guy's hand. Okay. So the point you're making is it can't be a, a coup. Uh, BK Parallax. It can't be a coup because you're running the government. You're running the government, but you're going to be out in 14 days, right? So yeah, it's a coup to make sure you stay in power. You, you get my last point to Jonathan Carl, right? I mean, all these things were taking place. All these things. We initially thought it was very haphazard. He gives a speech. He stokes up the crowd. They go down Pennsylvania Avenue. Some of them break into the Capitol, it was much, much more than that. It was much more sophisticated. And there were all different aspects of it that you have to pull back and look at the big picture. But what was the guy with the horn supposed to do? Because I don't believe it was left to chance. One more, if we have time. And apparently we do. Meadows is clearly not dialed in. Once you get on Trump's bad side, there's no coming back. By the way, I'll stop you right there. That's, that's BS. 
I mean, look at a guy like Bannon. Uh, you're never completely out of Trump world. I mean, that's the funny thing about it. He, he tolerates people fighting with him, coming back. Rudy, you could put Rudy in that category. Like, you're never dead to Trump until you're, you're really dead. What was the second part of that tweet? Put it back up there so I can respond to it. Once you get on Trump's bad side, you're not going back. He might as well cooperate with the investigation because Trump will destroy him first chance he gets. I, I, Michael, I, the person who sent this to me, what I don't understand is how does he produce Meadows, 9,000 pages of documents, write his own book, cooperate with the committee, and then suddenly reach a point where he's put all this information into the public domain and now say, well, executive privilege, I've, I've had enough. That makes no sense. There's more going on there. Anyway, what does it say that many of President Donald Trump's closest allies on Fox News privately begged Meadows, get the president to say something to end the Capitol rampage? A giant of political journalism is here to look at what this means for the network already facing all kinds of scrutiny. Frank Says No is next. Quote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy. I have never seen Trump rally attendees wearing helmets, black helmets, brown helmets, black backpacks, the uniforms that you saw in some of these crowd shots. Um, have you ever seen them wearing, as, as Chris said, those knee pads and the, you know, all the pads on their elbows? I just, I mean, I've been to a lot of these rallies. I know you, you both have covered them. I've never seen that before, ever. You can't have it both ways. That's Laura Ingram on January 6th, laid bare tonight, privately texting Mark Meadows that President Trump needed to do something to end the insurrection. And then hours later on her own program, suggesting they weren't really Trump supporters. Let's discuss with the director of the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University, Frank Sesno. He's also a former CNN Washington bureau chief. Frank, what do you make of tonight's events? There's been so much that's come forth. I think we're going through an enormous amount of documentation of how deep this went, uh, about how the people closest to, closest to the president were uh, alarmed, panicked over this, and pleading with the president to do something. I was really struck by Jonathan Carl's comments a few moments ago that what this shows is the great swirl around the president, but fundamentally that he tuned out from his son to uh, Laura Ingram for him to, to, to speak out and, and push back. And it shows that this was deeper and far more dangerous than most people uh, realized and that so many on the right continue to uh, believe uh, or at least portray as, as reality. Well, he shouldn't have needed to be told to do something to try and quell what was going on. It was on, it was on, on television. Right. It was live, Michael. Right. We were watching it. I was watching it thinking, is this building going to burn down? There was no ambiguity here. And the point I'm wondering is whether Mark Meadows took those communications to the president. Again, even if he didn't, the president had a TV and should have done something about it. But, but Frank, and, and my purpose here tonight is not to jolly stomp all over Fox News. But I do have to say the hypocrisy of correctly on the 6th saying, we got a real insurrection on our hands here. I'm paraphrasing. Do something about it. And then treating it ever thereafter as if it were no big deal. That's got to get called out. It's got to get called out. Look, what media companies need to do and anybody even remotely close to the world word journalism 
is they hold people in power to account, whichever side they're on. And people in the audience are going to push back and they say, well, CNN doesn't hold one side as accountable as the other and all the rest. Right. And argue about that. But you call out um, an inconsistency, a lie, a, a, a hypocrisy when you see it. And if there was ever something to see, it was on January 6th. And as you point out, Fox did it initially. So did many in the Republican Party, by the way. And so Fox's drift parallels the Republican Party's drift, another part of the problem here, away from the reality and the concern and the panic of that moment into something that is, you know, not revisionist history. It is propaganda, which is what we're seeing now. It is a lie. So tonight I was preparing for this program and I was I was in an office uh, here at the CNN headquarters, and there were monitors where I could keep an eye not only of our live feed, but also Fox and MSN and one other channel. I'm not even sure what it was. But I couldn't help but take note of the fact that Fox wasn't carrying any of the hearing, begging the observation that their audience won't even be aware, because you know how siloed people in are in, in, in their favorite media uh, outlet. Their audience, Frank, won't even be aware of the fact that these hosts got called out in this committee hearing. Well, maybe they'll be aware when their hosts actually are called to testify if they do that or if they're held to account by you and others in a public forum. This has been the problem now and a great concern I've had about Fox. We should have multiple voices covering the news. We should have conservative leading news organizations. But that's a very different thing than truth defying media companies. And that's unfortunately what this has become. And we uh, it pains me to say this, but it's painfully obvious and it's very dangerous. It, I can't help but say that Chris Wallace probably would have talked about it, you know, on a Sunday if you were still on the air there. And maybe that's the reason why he's not. Well, I, I, I'm a big fan of Chris's. I have been for a long time. I worked side by side with, with him way back when uh, in the Reagan White House when he was at NBC and I was a young reporter at CNN. Um, and Chris is tough. He's ferocious. And he, he, he calls it and he asks it as he sees it. And I think that he's done serious questioning. Here's something he said not long ago. He was interviewing Liz Cheney last month. And he said, look, we've always had differences over policy and we've always debated policy. But he said with some alarm, now we're debating facts and truth. And that gets, I think, to the core of what's going on here and probably the core of his uh, disassociation with Fox News and why he left. But, you know, they used to be able to say, well, we have Shep Smith. And, and, and we have Chris Wallace, and, and to a limited extent, and we have Brett Baer. Do you think they fill that void, or do they just quadruple down now on what is a successful business model? Big question, and I'm not sure it matters at this point. And then there was one, Brett Baer is who's left. There are others there who, who defend the news brand and who have been very fierce news reporters over the years, like John Roberts and others. Right. But they are, they are drowned out by the commentary. They are drowned out by the kinds of things that you and I just talked about and John Carl was talking about a little while ago. And that's very hard to, to say, well, you know, look at who we've got here and how legitimate we are. When, on the other hand, you're trafficking in all this other stuff that, that is, um, in so many cases, virtual fabrications. You know, Tucker Carlson's Patriot Purge is one of the things that got Chris Wallace uh, and, and Brett Baer, according to NPR and others, so exercised that they talked to management about it that this was, you know, highly irresponsible stuff that is feeding conspiracy theories with, with no justification for a news person, for someone who bases their career around demonstrable facts and things you can see and hear and prove. It's beyond insulting 
you know, it's 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 death-defying. Right. I mean, Tucker Carlson is behind a documentary about events that were so alarming that when they played out in real time, Fox hosts were trying to reach out for the president of the United States. I mean, there it is in a nutshell. Yeah, and 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 it was the same Fox hosts who had had unparalleled and really unprecedented access to the White House, to the Oval Office. They were virtual advisors to the president. That's right. something else. That- we're not supposed to do in media, but certainly not without disclosing it. Uh, now, some of it was very obvious because, you know, Sean Hannity was on stage in public, you know, with the president of the United States. People can make their judgments. But this is, you know, w- this is not a country where we're supposed to have state run television. No. And, um, that's what it's what it's looked like. Frank, thank you so much. Frank says no. Pleasure. We're keeping track of America's crime epidemic. Now an important player in the conversation suddenly changing his tune. He's coming to a realization that more of our nation needs to embrace as well. That's next. An emotional apology from the Philadelphia District Attorney amid the city's rising gun violence. I know that those words were the wrong ones. I chose them. They came out of my mouth. This is on me. I accept responsibility for that. I own that because I failed in not acknowledging that pain and that suffering, a pain that disproportionately affects people of color and poor people. So for that, I am truly sorry. Larry Krasner is talking about what he said last week at another press conference. That's when he said that there is no crisis of lawlessness, crime, or violence, despite the city's now 528 murders for this year, and the year's not yet over. Those comments drew swift criticism, including from the city's former mayor, Michael Nutter, who didn't hold back when I asked him about Krasner's first attempt to claim that his comments were simply inarticulate. Well, I don't think his comments were inarticulate. They were just ignorant. Um, And it's not me, certainly, that he needs to apologize to. He needs to apologize to the now 524 families, the thousands who have a family member killed, or the thousands of people who have been shot. Um, It was a full-on statement um, filled with, you know, his level of rhetoric uh, and inability to accept responsibility for his role. We asked Krasner to come on the program last week and again tonight. It's telling that while the apology seems to have progressed, the conversation hasn't really moved. Today's press conference was supposed to be about crime in the Center City neighborhood, but speaker after speaker seemed more concerned about Krasner's choice of words. There was noticeably very little talk about what to do in a city where four people were murdered just since my interview with the former mayor. Up next, the pictures we're seeing of the deadly tornadoes that ripped across eight states are almost unbelievable. So, too, is the response of one powerful lawmaker who's asking for help in his home state, but only after years of saying no when others pleaded for the same compassion. Reality Check with John Avlon is next. Tonight, search and rescue efforts continue in Kentucky. Dozens remain missing after that swarm of historic tornadoes 
ripped across eight states. At least 74 people are dead in Kentucky alone. Hundreds more are out of their homes. That's got Kentucky Senator Rand Paul pushing for federal aid, which would seem obvious, except that in years past, he's made a career out of opposing disaster relief from the feds. John Avlon is here tonight with a reality check. That's right. Look, Hours after a devastating December tornado tore through Kentucky, causing more than 200 miles of destruction, Senator Rand Paul was asking President Joe Biden for aid from the federal government. Now, this is pretty standard stuff, except for the fact that it came from Rand Paul. Because the Kentucky senator, who hails from the first family of American libertarians, has a long record of opposing federal aid for disaster victims. Except, apparently, when it impacts his constituents. Suddenly, all the reflexive attacks on socialist government spending don't seem to apply. But after Superstorm Sandy, it was a different story. Rand Paul strenuously opposed relief, getting in a spat with then-New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, accusing aid advocates in the Northeast of being greedy. A few years later, Rand Paul opposed aid for the victims of Hurricanes Maria, Irma, and Harvey that hit Puerto Rico and the Gulf Coast, saying this on the Senate floor. People here will say they have great compassion and they want to help the people of Puerto Rico and the people of Texas and the people of Florida. But notice they have great compassion with someone else's money. And that's not all. He tried to block the extension of the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund, opposed efforts to bolster FEMA's Emergency Disaster Relief Fund. And just a few months ago, he blocked Louisiana Senator John Kennedy's attempt to pass the $1.1 billion Gulf Coast Hurricane Aid Act by unanimous consent. But now that Kentuckians are in dire need, Rand Paul is singing a very different tune. Gone are the demands for delay and requests to find the funds elsewhere. Now he wants the Fed's filthy lucre as fast as possible. Joining him in this ideological flip-flop is Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky, best known for his gun-toting family Christmas card. This is worse than simple hypocrisy or situational ethics. It exposes the core callousness of calling government aid some kind of big-spending socialist scheme. Because it always seems to be socialism for me, but not for thee. Case in point, a Rockefeller Institute study that found Kentucky got billions more in federal aid than it sent from 2015 to 2018, far more than those blue states in the Northeast who needed help after Sandy. If he was really trying to be a fiscal conservative profile and courage, now would be the time for Rand Paul to insist that Kentuckians rely on local charity or reallocation of funds rather than immediately asking President Biden for help. But of course, that would be an insult to his suffering constituents, just like it is when senators from other states ask for help after devastating natural disasters, which are getting worse due to the climate crisis that so many in the GOP still deny. This isn't complicated, folks. It's common sense. Government exists in large part to help each other in times of great need. And this isn't some left-wing vision. Listen to Kentucky-born Abraham Lincoln, who believed that the legitimate object of government is to do for a community of people whatever they need to have done but cannot do at all or cannot do so well do for themselves in their separate and individual capacities. That's exactly the situation Kentucky is in right now, with people reeling from the deadliest tornado in the state's history. They need help. And that's what they'll get, because it's consistent with our character as a country. We come together in times of crisis, helping our fellow citizens recover and rebuild without playing red state v. blue state political games. That's why we call it the United States of America. And that's your reality check. John Avalon, thank you for that report. We'll be right back with some reaction to tonight's program. 
here's some of the social media reaction to tonight's program. What do we have? Smirkanish, you said something tonight that caught my attention about the insurrection. The people were lost, but not all of them. But they were still wrong for entering the Capitol building. Well, the point I was trying to make is this, that this was a a very uh, complex effort on January the 6th. Not what I initially took it for. What I initially took it for was that the president spoke, fired up that crowd. Some of those people then marched down Pennsylvania Avenue. Some of them stormed into the Capitol. But there were many moving parts before we ever got to January 6th. A couple of legal memos that I discussed with Jonathan Carl providing uh, a justification for that which was taking place, convincing the president and people in the White House that they had a legal basis to do this. They were leaning on Mike Pence. They were leaning on the Justice Department. You had efforts taking place in the states. I mean, it was very comprehensive, but there's that missing piece What were the foot soldiers told that they should do? I want to know. And the answer probably lies in the war room at the Willard Hotel the night before. So file that away and we'll see what transpires. Thank you so much for watching. I'll be back here tomorrow night. Don Lemon is in the on-deck circle. Hey, Don. We got just one uh, reaction to your show, but I think that was a good one. Uh, do you remember, Michael, watching? I was watching that day going, is this, am I watching what I'm watching? Like, what, we weren't sure what was happening. That day, we weren't sure for a moment if what was happening was actually happened. And then it, all of a sudden, the cold reality that there was an insurrection happening at the, our nation's capital in front of our very eyes. It's sort of like they said about September 11. It defied imagination. It's not mm-hmm. something that you ever expected to see in the United States. Yeah, you're right. And the details are pouring out, and I'm going to get to it. It's good to Great. see you, Michael. You Great too. show. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.